0: Welcome everyone, it's time to focus your attention and presence,
1: and listen with an open mind.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to the Flying Sage podcast. This is your host Michael Oliver. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Legacy Journeys, a guiding practice I started two years ago. Bridging ceremonial, clinical, and therapeutic approaches, Legacy Journeys offers transformational psychedelic experiences towards embodiment and lasting change. We host individual journeys as well as retreats, utilizing a variety of different medicines. To learn more, visit legacyjourneys.ca. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Flying Sage
3: podcast.
4: Hello, everyone. And my name is Gabo. I am the chief community uh, officer, we could say, of the Flying Sage. Uh, I wear many different hats for the Flying Sage. And I also host Breathworks. I'm a Breathwork facilitator. And I am here today at this panel to share stories. I am a big psychonaut, and one of my favorite ways to explore my the inner windings of my mind is through ketamine. I have experienced both really beneficial things in my life, um, but also have faced the detriments of what can happen when it is not used responsibly. So I am here as your friendly, uh, psychedelic user to share what it's done for my own life and also to learn from the other panelists that are here as well thank you
5: thank you everyone for coming today it's great to see some familiar faces a lot of new faces my name is madison i am a registered nurse practicing using ketamine um, for therapeutic uh, reasons in vancouver Um, i'm working with uh, a team that is doing that as well including helen lochney who's sitting over here on the panel as well Yeah, I've been working with this medicine for seven years now or so, and uh, it's yeah, just really excited to share about it. I can talk for hours longer than this panel is, so come chat with me after.
0: Hello everyone, my name is Mohit. I'm a trauma counselor working here at Thrive Downtown as well as my own private practice. At Thrive, we do a lot of psychedelic integration and offer A range of different modalities like EMDR, EFT, trauma-focused therapies, and I have a lot of personal recreational experience with psychedelics as well as ketamine, so I'm here to share some perspectives from the healing side of things.
6: Hi, my name's Helen Loshny. I'm a registered therapeutic counselor and co-founder of Empower Health, which was the first wellness center in the area to start a ketamine-assisted therapy program in 2019. I have been in the psychedelic movement since 2011, hosting, stewarding, practicing, offering in a number of spaces and places. They have made a profound impact on my life, in my family, and in our community. And I'm really grateful to be here. It's great to see so many people here. And I'm really looking forward to the... The discussion.
1: Hello everybody. I'm Mark Hayden. I feel like I know many of you. My first career was I ran a team of addiction therapists for Vancouver Coastal Health. I did that for decades. Bailed on that to go work for UBC. I'm an adjunct professor out there with population and public health. Um, started MAPS Canada for a while. Did that for 10 years and promoted psychedelic research across Canada. And curiously enough, it feels like my journey is going around in this spiral cycle thing, because I'm back to supervising therapists. And I work at Vancouver's oldest and largest alternate health clinic, who's called Qi, spelled Q-I. And I run a team of 10 therapists and nurses who are providing psychedelic and ketamine services to the public.
2: Wonderful. Thanks, everyone, for introductions. Can we get a round of applause for all of our panelists? And also, I usually do this before, but I also wanted to invite you to give one more round of applause for not only Damien, who's offered us this beautiful space, but also all the volunteers that have helped to make this event possible. So if we can give one more round of applause everyone, too. All right, so we're going to start with a simple question. Well, maybe it's simple. I don't know. What is ketamine, and is it a psychedelic?
5: So ketamine is technically and its like class of drugs is an NMDA receptor antagonist. It's a dissociative anesthetic. So while it is used in many different ways, therapeutically, primary purpose when it was created was as an anesthetic medicine. So that is its origin. It was made in a lab, it is synthetic, and psychedelic, my personal opinion is that I like to refer to it as an atypical psychedelic. And I know we're leaving space for lots of parts of the answer, so whoever wants to jump in.
0: I think originally it was a horse tranquilizer. That was kind of the early uses of ketamine. Just wanted to add that. (laughs) Yes, ketamine is a
1: psychedelic. If you think about classifications of drugs, there's stimulants, there's depressions, there's psychedelics, and it fits comfortably in that realm, and it fits in with all those other ones. I mean, there's a, a range of different drugs in that particular category. If MDMA, MDA, 3MMC, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, if all of those are classified as psychedelics, ketamine is a psychedelic. I mean, yes, it's a dissociative anesthetic, but it has a profound psychedelic experience, if used at the appropriate psychedelic dose. If you give people a lot more of it, it becomes an anesthetic. But the psychedelic dose is a specific window of opportunity for therapists.
2: Anything else to add there from anyone?
1: All right.
6: I think just to add quickly, as probably everybody knows here, psychedelic means mind manifesting and Humphrey Osmond, Osmond, the Canadian actually coined that term in the 1950s when they started practicing with it in in Saskatchewan of all places. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, um, ketamine very much fits that definition.
2: And so what are the different ways that ketamine is used?
5: many different ways. If the list is so long, it's like, you know, and more and more is coming out all the time. So research have like, there's a huge influx of research happening in ketamine and all psychedelics right now. So that's really amazing. Some of the kind of top reasons that it's used is to treat things like depression, anxiety, symptoms of PTSD, substance use disorder, including alcohol and cocaine use disorder. It is used really frequently as a medicine for pain, so treating things like chronic regional pain syndrome or fibromyalgia, things that really affect the nerves in the body, it can really help to kind of dampen the pain response. And like I said, yeah, used in surgery and also for personal exploration and growth.
4: yeah i can I can touch on that personal <laughs> aspect of ketamine, maybe and by sharing a story of how I've used ketamine in my own life. Circa around a year and a half ago, I was experiencing really intense bouts of panic attacks and anxiety. I think they were generated out of a really strong substance calm down. After having gone to a festival, I was just feeling in the trenches, and everything was creating this sense of not being able to breathe, I had to take breaks when I was at work and just go lie down next to a tree and just pray to the tree and just breathe. And a friend invited me over to their place. And first they went, okay, the first step is we're gonna take a little hit of this DMT pen. So we took a little hit of this DMT pen. What that did for me is that it created this sense of, of a grounding, just familiarity with, we could say, the space in between spaces, the ethereal realm next we took a really big dose of ketamine proceeded to put on blindfolds and then just lie down and in this conscious space i can only describe what happened as interdimensional travel within my own mind i started to feel like my body got deconstructed i went to the galaxy and and my whole body was just just became part of everything and then I started flying and I saw this turquoise fluorescent flowers and as I was flying in that space I consciously brought to mind two of the main memories that were creating this sense of anxiety that made me feel like I just couldn't cope with life and because of the state that I was in and because I was flying in space I didn't get the anxiety response I didn't Get the same feeling of constriction in my heart. I didn't feel like life was just too much to bear with. And at that moment, I saw all of the flowers that I was seeing just start to blossom. And because I was part of the everything, my body started to blossom, and I had the experience of my whole body blossoming like flowers. And, and I still remember how that felt to this day. And then afterwards, as I was coming down, I got to get a glimpse of what I can only describe as little me's building myself. So I had a bird's eye view of myself from uh, above my left shoulder, looking down, and I could see scaffolding on my shoulder, and I could see a bunch of tiny versions of myself, both female and males, that were building me. And when they noticed me noticing them, they started cheering me on. So I got the experience of being cheered on by myself. And that's probably one of the most deep experiences of self-love that I've ever had. When I came out of the experience the next day, I had no panic attacks. And when I talked to my coworker about it, I told him that I was worried that this wasn't gonna last. And he told me, you choose to make it last. And so I left there an opening for skepticism, of course. Will this actually persist? But I also decided that If I had the choice, I was going to prime myself for it to do so. And, you know, there's been other little panic attacks here and there, but that is one of the uses that I've had from ketamine. (laughs) To be continued. (laughs) Thanks for that detailed uh,
2: exploration and sharing that with us. I'm curious to hear from any other panelists. That kind of leads into the next question I was going to ask, which is what does the ketamine experience resemble for you? Or how would you describe the actual experience itself of ketamine?
1: Before we answer that question, th- there is a piece of sort of interesting history around ketamine, is the military really likes it. If you think about what happens with military scenarios, people get badly injured, and the soldiers have to help other soldiers who are now in trauma, physical trauma. And wh- if they give them opiates, they can kill them. It's very hard to dose. But ketamine is actually quite easy to dose, and you can give people a profound experience that is an anesthetic experience without any harm in terms of the safety profile window at dosing. So the military actually really appreciates ketamine, which is a curious thing, and it's, it's useful to know because they can advocate for ketamine in different scenarios, and we want as many advocates as we can get.
6: And there's a Lot known about the history of the use of ketamine in the medical field. At the same time that use was emerging, it was also becoming known and used as a therapeutic adjunct. So one of the founding fathers of psychedelic assisted therapy Stan Graf used ketamine in in part of his work, and he inherited, the particular way of using it from a very controversial Mexican therapist, Salvador Roquette. So these two ways of using it were kind of emerging in parallel.
0: Just adding to Gabo's point that it can act as a spiritual medicine in many ways, even though it's a synthetic compound, it's really interesting. If you are someone who's spiritually inclined, it can to some extent, be a part of your spiritual practice. I know it sounds weird, but.
2: All right, and then I was just gonna ask if there's anything else anyone wants to add about the different ways that ketamine is used or different things that it's used for before we go on to the next question that maybe we haven't touched on yet. Anything else you can add?
5: Um, Just a couple of things that I forgot to list is that can be used for like eating disorders and OCD, you know, acknowledging that these are boxes that know are created in the medical system in order to diagnose and understand things so it's a kind of a limited f- way of looking at it and i love that we've touched on some more expansive ways of looking at it as well and that's all important to include
2: and then what about now how it's administered could you share a little bit more about the different ways that people can actually take ketamine or how ketamine is administered
5: i get the like you know textbook answers madison you know <laughs> no. So, yeah, it really can be given, taken in a lot of different ways. I, you know, sort of joke, but seriously, it can be put in every orifice of the body and (laughs) it'll work. So, you know, as well as like topical as a cream. So the ways that it's often used, you know, in therapeutic context is either like intravenously, so injected in the vein through a slow drip, intramuscularly, so injected in the muscle, like the same way a flu shot would be or anything else, Uh, sublingually in a lozenge that goes under the tongue and dissolves. You can snort it as a powder or insufflate it, is the technical term for that. You can dissolve it in a spray and spray it in your nose that way. You can swallow it. The only thing I haven't, if anybody has tried this, Let me know (laughs) in eye drops. I don't know if that would be painful or not, but I think it would probably work. (laughs) But yes, it can be put uh, rectally, vaginally, like any oral mucosal surface, it'll absorb. So there you go.
1: (laughs) Thank you. To build on that wisdom, It's interesting, if you look at the academic literature on ketamine, you see it kind of breaks down into two branches. There's the folks that use ketamine IM in eMERGE situations. So if you are running an eMERGE, if you show up at an eMERGE hospital in many jurisdictions in the States and some in Canada, and you say the word depression, you will be invited to go and sit in a chair. And you go sit in the chair in the corner, sometimes in the waiting room, and they hook you up with this drip. There's no preparation, there's no discussion, there's no nothing. They hook you up with this drip, they give you a moderate dose of ketamine and blow you out into somewhere, and you sit there for long enough that the nurse eventually decides that it's time to bring you back, and they stop the drip, and they come over and they say, are you ready to go home now? And so there's no prep, there's no set, there's no setting, there's no preparation, and, but curiously enough, it works. And those who argue for that way of doing it argue that it's accessible and cheap because it doesn't require a lot of staff time. The other branch of literature says using it as a therapeutic tool with lots of preparation and lots of culture and lots of nurture and and lots of integration I- is way better. I'm of the second camp. But it's useful to know that there are actually two groups out there talking about the use of ketamine. And one involves it with therapy and one doesn't.
5: Just that I, I completely am in agreement with Mark, and, but something that was shared with me somewhat recently that I found interesting in the way of thinking about it is that a lot of people aren't necessarily ready to engage in that level of therapeutic process. And so it was, a, you know, it illuminated something for me in a question. It's like, well, you know, if the ketamine works on its own, even at a low dose, that would be the ethical thing to do at least to relieve a bit of suffering for them without taking them to outer space.
6: And as Gabor and Mohit alluded to, it, it is an avenue for profound spiritual exploration.
2: Thank you. And I just wanted to mention for everyone else here, I didn't mention at the beginning, but we are going to be saving time at the end for question and answer. So if you have questions, write them down. We're going to create a dedicated space for that soon. So the next question I had was going to be around the legality of ketamine, because I kind of alluded to it earlier that my understanding is ketamine is like the first legal psychedelic, if you don't count cannabis, in Canada. And I'm just curious if any of you could share anything about that. Like, what do you think led to ketamine being the first legal psychedelic? Is it something about ketamine itself? Is it the fact that it was used in a medical context for so many years? I'd just love you to share anything about why is ketamine where it is right now?
6: So yes very much so to that latter point Michael it was it's already being used legally for certain conditions and in certain ways so that was definitely the case but as i mentioned earlier because there was a parallel process of ketamine being explored for in therapeutic modalities at the mm-hmm. same time it was being recognized in the medical field that's why it's emerging the way it, the way it is don't think i have anything more to say about that
1: It was really curious. A lot of surgeons used it when they were amputating and doing major surgery on people's bodies. They had no understanding of it being used therapeutically at all, but their clients and patients would come back to them and say, this is how my knee is working, but I'm no longer depressed. And enough of these surgeons got together and said, are you finding this in the population that you're operating on? And the answer was yes. And so. In terms of a legal structure, the legal structure of drugs in Canada is the CDSA, the Canadian Drugs and Substances Act, that is federally mandated. And it's described as a drug that can be prescribed, but the colleges of the provinces, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, are the ones who specify how it's actually used. So within that context, doctors got together and say, this is a really helpful therapeutic tool. And so the colleges said, okay, severe depression in hospitals. And that happened for a while, and then, quite astutely, it was observed, we don't need a hospital setting. This is a very safe drug to administer, because the therapeutic dose is about a fifth of an anesthetic dose. And we know an anesthetic dose is safe. So the college grudgingly said, okay, you can use it in community. And the the document, the title of the document that they submitted or or made available, was it talked about mental health conditions and chronic pain. Now that's a really interesting use of language because they didn't actually talk about mental health diagnoses. I personally interpret the word condition to be larger than the word diagnosis. So the college is actually being quite proactive by saying you can use it in community with mental health conditions and chronic pain. I think that's a pretty strong statement.
0: And I from what I've Red, it, it seems like it's very safe to use even for populations as young as like five years old where children are needing surgery. So if it's safe for you know younger populations, usually it requires a higher level of safety and testing. Um, so I think that also really helped push for it to be legalized.
2: Yeah. Anything else?
6: And yeah. I, maybe it's time to just say a little <laughs> bit more about CATA Canada. Uh, Madison, did you want to just um, talk about the draft standard that CATA Canada developed?
7: Sure.
6: <laughs> yeah.
5: Thank you, Helen. A not-for-profit organization that I am the executive director of. The Academy Assisted Therapy Association uh, is a group of interdisciplinary professionals who came together seeing the need for there to be this type of organization that's really looking at, you know, practice communities, supporting each other to learn and grow in this field. And one of our key initiatives that we're really proud of was a practice standards recommendations that outline sort of the safety, what would be required for someone setting up a ketamine-assisted therapy practice or clinic to follow. And yeah, so you can find that online on our website. Awesome.
2: So the next question I had for you was focused, again, more on the experience of ketamine itself. And I'm curious if you could share what distinguishes ketamine
4: from other psychedelics. I can talk about it in terms of stages. That's how I tend to experience ketamine. I'll start with that experience and maybe I'll compare it to others afterwards. So for me, the best way I've find, found to describe it for myself is that the initial come up of the medicine feels like I just got on the sauna, but without any water. So that's how it feels like. It feels like my whole body's not hot either. It's just that experience without the heat or without the water. It's just like you, you have this warm blanket that starts to cover you. and as it it continues to come up, depending on how much you've taken, it goes from this warm blanket covering your body, to it covering your whole awareness, your consciousness, and it usually tends to take me to this place that I have coined for my own self, uh, like the the dark gates of blackness, because you experience, that's why I'm wearing black today, because it really, that's what I experience when I get there. And I usually get this experience of falling backwards, almost like I'm falling into a reverse state of somethingness. And if I surrender in that experience, everything goes beautifully. If I fight that experience, it becomes a really challenging trip where I tend to want to stand up and my whole body just starts to feel a little bit like things don't sit right. But then during the surrender piece, as it starts to leave my body, it tends to come pretty fast for me. I experience lucidity quite fast and there's just this small sense of sluggishness that is left. So that's for me, that's my ketamine arc, you could say. The biggest difference is that to me, it doesn't tend to generate the same feeling of, oh my God, here we go, that mushrooms does, for example, or LSD, where I just know I'm here for this ride And I'm going to have to to give my will uh, to the the mushrooms and let them take me wherever wholeness is missing and wherever I need to go. So it tends to be more pleasant compared to most psychedelics. Uh, Even MDMA can be a little overwhelming if you take too much right away. But in ketamine, if your dose is really well taken care of, it, it can be quite easeful is what I find. And um, maybe we'll talk about doses in a moment, but that's my
0: experience.
8: Yeah,
2: thank you for that. Curious if anyone has any kind of reflections or comments on that, on that first piece which Gabo shared, which was the arc, and how, maybe how you relate to that for yourself.
0: Yeah, it's a very fast come up. I've noticed it's a very like inner experience, whereas other psychedelics can be very outward. So you're very much in your mind. There's a state, it's called NSDR, Don sleep deep rest. It kind of mimics that, where you're not fully like napping, but you're not fully consciously alert pseudo dreamlike, and you can kind of go deep into the kind of creative realm. That's kind of how I describe it. We run a public education
1: evening once a month at Chi, where I get asked that question every single time, is what's it like? And I used to make a mistake. I used to tell them what it was like for me, and I would inevitably, it was, it's a, a mistake because my experience is not the same as anybody else's. Everybody has a different experience. And so now I have a very careful answer that I give and basically say a bit what Gabo said. So most psychedelics do have an anxiety response initially that isn't there for ketamine. That's pretty consistent with ketamine, so that's a fair thing to say. But other than that, I basically say it'll be a profound experience, which is also true. The most common word that people say as they emerge from the experience is, wow. <laughs> so, a profound experience that is actually indescribable. And if you've never taken a psychedelic, and many people who are coming to us, have had depression, and, and they're not there for a psychedelic experience. They're there for treatment. And so, giving them words to describe an ineffable experience actually doesn't work. So we basically say it's, it's a, it won't stimulate anxiety, which is true, and you'll have a profound experience and it'll be your experience and I can't describe it to you.
6: I'm a consciousness geek. I love exploring <laughs> the different realms and approaches and wisdom traditions to consciousness, which some declare is our essential nature. So that's the framework I work in. It's not the only one, but in terms of personal exploration, it's my favorite. And one of the things that I feel that Ketterman lends to our growth is the sense of the dissolution of the subject-object boundary. So there'll be experiences of unity and merging and that kind of enlightenment quest of of oneness. It's not the only experience, and it's not an experience that everybody has all the time either. And again, if you are working within a certain framework, it certainly matches experiences of what long-time meditators and monks and other people who are seeking and looking for truth if you will experiencing states of Samadhi a very deep meditation again where there's just a profound sense of dissolution So that that's another way of seeing it and experiencing it
0: Just to add to that one uniqueness about it too that is kind of frustrating is because it's an anesthetic you can have profound experiences, and it's really hard to recall the details of them because they just come and go, and if you don't record them or reflect on them almost immediately, they are just gone, so.
5: Yeah, I relate to pieces of what everyone has shared, and for me, in the times I've experienced, there's always this very distinct sense of being turned into a vibration in a way that it's like I'm being vibrated into this other realm, and it's, I can hear it in my ears. It's a buzzing that's kind of all over and really familiar. And there's a very distinct detachment from the body, which is really interesting because you still, in a way, sometimes have a visceral sense that you are maneuvering in a way that you have a body, but there's no peripheral sensation of having a body. So very much a conscious observer being carried through different landscapes, very impacted by the music. All psychedelics are, but ketamine just slightly different that way that, you know, if the music gets quiet in a moment, it's almost like the visual field can just shoo, it'll shrink and go down to nothing and then expand back out in, in a different way. And so it can almost feel like you're traveling through different landscapes, and I really appreciate what you said, Mark, and not putting too much out there when you're speaking to clients and things like that, and really allowing them to, you know, these aren't things that I would share like that with a client, because, you know, again, it's important that people are able to experience it freshly in the way that's for them, yeah.
2: Wonderful. Thanks for sharing all those pieces. I'm curious if there's anything else to add around the distinction between ketamine and other psychedelics. You kind of are just starting to speak to that there with the, this concept of the self, sounds like you're saying that stays more intact with ketamine compared to other psychedelics and I'm curious if anyone else has anything to share comparing
4: yeah I I would add just a a small thing the method of ingestion that I've uh, done the most is encephalated so through the nose and something that's really reassuring is that it doesn't last that long so usually for myself rather I should say for myself it doesn't last that long thank you for it it usually is over after 35 to 45 minutes whereas something like mushrooms i'm probably looking at more like five to six hours so because of that it really for me has allowed for a lot of exploration with other modalities as well so i've used it in combination with breath work. Sadly, my tolerance built up really fast, so I've used it in combination with dancing, things like ecstatic dance, and if you're able to, to be with it in a way that doesn't create a sense of, like that paralysis that you can get from it being anesthetic, it has led to so many beautiful experiences in my life, but the duration piece is the one I wanted to touch on.
2: Thank you. All right, so the next question is an important one too, and I wanted to ask each of you, what are your thoughts on the, well not your thoughts, but what are do you, what are your shares around the risks of ketamine? I'm curious to hear what you have to share around that. And kind of a follow-up question to that is, is ketamine addictive?
4: So I'm going to out myself here because I was under the impression that there were no bad things about ketamine. I think because of the, because in a way it's just like MDMA, it's a bridge for making it accessible for people. A lot of the times in the media, the benefits get really highlighted. So I'm here to share with you live and direct what I've experienced in terms of negative effects of ketamine. The first one is that it can be really pleasant. And when you experience anything that's really pleasant and you're not, you don't really wanna deal with unpleasantness in your life, eh, that has a potential addictive property to it. So I found myself wanting to use it anytime I wanted to meditate really deeply. So then it became a daily thing. And then I started to, I wanted to use it when I got like anxiety jitters. So then it started to become more frequent. And because I, I know that I have a bit of an addictive tendency to myself, I was able to just distance myself from it and use other tools within my own life, exercise, meditation, breath work even, to create a bit of space within it. So. I'm here to tell you that it has the potential. I know that it's not as common, but just like anything that can give you a sense of relief. And then the second piece is that if you start doing that, your nose gets clogged, if that's the way that you're consuming it. And so, yeah, nose gets clogged, that feels horrible, sleep gets affected in result of that, and it would it would feel like I just didn't sleep for a whole night, even though it was so pleasant for that, because. It would bring me to a state of calmness before going to bed. It had a very similar effect like weed had on me, where I started to feel like I needed it to fall asleep. But in reality, because I do check with my interception, with my sense of internal states very often, that I was definitely not as rested. So those are my two cents on that.
2: Thank you.
5: Thank you for sharing that very personal experience. It's important. And I was saying to Michael before we got on the panel that it's really interesting to notice yeah, how, how things have changed in the last year and people are more and more starting to talk about uh, concerns with ketamine overuse. Um, and spinning off of what Gabo said, if a person is experiencing something that they're lacking in life or that there's a, a sadness or they're missing connection and belonging and all of these things and you take some ketamine and you feel good for a period of time, um, you can understand how that would create a desire to want to keep using it. So, certainly, you know, I understand that in the UK, there actually is quite a concern with ketamine addiction, and it was very cheap for a long time, so it was used in, in the rave scene, and then people got used to that, and to the degree that, you know, one of the sort of, like, nasty, kind of more end stage, I don't even want to say end-stage because I've heard of cases actually where it's been more early on, just people are more prone to it, is is bladder issues to the degree where you actually need to have your bladder removed and have an external bladder. And certainly not to scare anyone, but this is a harm reduction point, is if you're using ketamine and you're noticing you're having bladder or kidney pain, probably good to not take it anymore. I'll leave it there.
0: Just to piggyback off of that, yeah, that's kind of where tolerance kicks in, too. If, if you're very new to it, you can find it might, you might be very immobile under your first few sessions on it because your body's just not, not used to it and it isn't anesthetic. But as tolerance builds up and regularity increases, you might find having to take higher and higher doses, which, to Madison's point, can you know add to that whole bladder infection issue and all the other things. So, double-edged sword.
6: Yes, there's a really some really... More and more interesting and helpful information coming out on the potential Addiction risks as everybody has alluded to it's the use of the substance and the belief that it will fill a void And there's many substances and things that we can get addicted to that do that we think it's the thing or the Uh, or or whatever behavior that we're indulging in. And so one of the ways that we approach it to help mitigate it is it's in a therapeutic or ceremonial setting. And the client, we really make sure that they understand that it's a catalyst and a tool, and it's to be used with reverence and care and respect. So it's really reframing the approach to it And when we do it that way and help them understand that it's within the actual, they are the medicine and this is again a complementary way of accessing that information, that understanding, then again it it mitigates the risk of addiction. But uh, welcoming more and more information and discussion and conversation about it, because that will also that level of education will help people understand the best way it can be used.
1: When you look at the ketamine research, and it's given when it's given in a clinical setting with trained therapists, and the focus is not on ketamine, the focus is on healing, and it's seen as one part of the healing tool. Then addiction is an incredibly low risk. If you're using it outside of those contexts, then the risk goes up. And addiction is not a simple concept. Addiction is a human experience that we can do to many things, many behaviors, many substances. And that's not the topic of this discussion. But it's, when you say, is something addictive, that's not a particularly good question. Because we as human beings can do all kinds of outrageous behaviors. Thank you. So, the next question I had was, for those of you that
2: do work with ketamine in a professional context, a clinical context, what is your favorite part of that
1: work? I'll be honest with you, I like it because it's easy. (laughs) I'm a supervisor of therapists, and I'm a trainer of therapists, and I really When we first started the clinic and I was hiring staff, we had these big ideas about doing MDMA work through the special access program and everything else. And I really got to appreciate there's a simplicity. It's a short-acting substance, uh, about an hour if you're IM, intramuscular, and it's anti-anxiety at first. And so many of the other psychedelic drugs are a lot more difficult to work with. And so the training and the support that staff need is quite different. So if I could start this whole thing again and say, if I had to use just one drug to train staff with, it would be ketamine. And I kind of just stumbled on that, and I didn't really understand that. The idea of a short-acting anti-anxiety drug that is actually profoundly effective is a a very easy tool to use. And it allows team members to bond to each other and to learn their skills and to work with each other in a very constructive and positive way. I like it because it's simple
6: yes absolutely echo that thank you mark it really is so it covers a number of bases in terms of the therapeutic the power of the therapeutic tool but also the potential to offer training and supervision in a really robust way and the other thing that i really like about it and it goes to mohit's earlier comment just in terms of the recall well with a a therapist and or nurse being there throughout the whole session, we get to, in some cases, we're working towards recording sessions, but we're always making notes. So essentially when the client's coming out of the peak experience, we can then start to talk about, because essentially the filters are off in the deep experience. So the expression is really honest and pure, vocal and physical expression, and we make notes and then we can start talking to the client about what we witnessed and so it helps them anchor the experience right coming out of it and being able to help them give words to ineffable experiences is a really profound part of how you make this sustainable i like working with ketamine
5: because it is really fun (laughs) it's really fun to be a part of that experience with someone to even in the most minor of way even if i'm in the back working on the spreadsheets in the background arranging appointments and all that kind of stuff you know i know just what contain that container is doing for someone and i i love that that's not speaking about ketamine specifically but more about the larger aspect of this work Another part that I really enjoy, it's predictable, and I love working with the dosing. When somebody's coming in for a series of appointments, they're making a pretty big investment into this type of treatment. It's mostly private pay at this point. So getting the dosing as right as possible on the first session is something that I love, and there's really an art to it, and really gauging where someone is and being able to respond in the moment to adjust and increase or whatever is needed to really get them as close to the right therapeutic range in the first session is also very fun. Thanks for
2: bringing up dose, and that kind of comes back to your point. It'd be nice to talk about that for a little bit. So I'm curious if each of you could share either in professional context or recreational context, what is your approach to dosing? What makes a good dose?
5: It's a big question, actually. There's so many different approaches, so I'll just start there. So I'm going to speak to one approach, which is taking someone to a psychedelic or to as close to a full dissociative dose as possible. Now, how quickly you bring someone there, you need to gauge that based on their readiness and all of those sorts of things. But that is the approach that I have experienced to be the most useful the fastest so it's 1.5 milligrams per kilogram intramuscularly often in a divided dose is you know maybe not on the first session but that's ultimately where we're trying to take people to
0: yeah well I don't I don't professionally offer this I can say recreationally that splitting that dose in half and kind of doing a second dose after that first hour gets you to go a bit quite a bit deeper so that really helps to Yeah, split it that way.
6: And while 1.5, help me, Madison, milligrams per kilogram, is is the range we work in. It it's really interesting, and this is where the art of it comes in because someone who might look like they need a high dose because of their weight and stature sometimes can be super sensitive, and actually. You know have a profound experience at a lower dose that someone who is smaller or so th- there really is an art to it and often that the first session, and it's part of the dosing is three sessions over a three week period is the minimum that we recommend to really get sustainable effects. That first session is where we can kind of really assess what the subsequent sessions are going to be in terms of dosing?
1: We ask people a very simple question when they come back from the experience. Did you leave the room? If we get a yes response, we know we're pretty close. There's such a thing as too little ketamine and there's such a thing as too much ketamine. Too little ketamine means they didn't leave the room. They were still caught in the monkey mind and they didn't have a profound psychedelic experience. If you give people too much, it's not harmful, but they just don't remember what happened. So we want people to remember what happened and have a profound psychedelic experience, and the best way that we can gauge that is that very simple question, did you leave
4: the room? I'm also not administering this professionally, but I can also just speak from experience. And I will say that the dose, for me, really depends on my intention. So as they're describing, that's a dose that would take you outside of the room into these more profound experiences. I've played with using smaller doses to create a different experience for myself as well. I just use it as an example. The, the ability to feel my body really gets enhanced by a smaller dose. So that's been a really curious experience and I don't have any specific measurements. I just know the size of the little spoon that I have <laughs> and how many that takes to take me to the place I wanna go. But what really was, is interesting to me just in this dosage conversation is how fast my tolerance increased from, even not using it that often at the beginning, like afterwards when it started to get associated with so many pleasant experiences, there was an increase. But before that, we could say like an eighth of a, of a teaspoon, like, like the, even, even smaller than that. That would take me to places that were quite close to what they were describing and that quickly started to increase and it never really seemed to go down even after taking a lot of breaks so i'm really curious to the the more clinically clinical clinically experienced people in the panel does that ever come back or have i ruined ketamine for myself
5: (laughs) this is yeah just speaking to my experience and witnessing clients and more so working in the chronic pain setting where people are coming back more frequently we would use that as a strategy in order to decrease their tolerance is to make sure that we're scheduling things far enough out and that they weren't necessarily using like things in between so that they would get that effect again when they come back and it never went you know back to zero you know a person the most frequent flyer patient which is, yeah, definitely medical slang. (laughs) Very, you know, would use doses that were 10 times the amount of someone coming in fresh. So just to give you a perspective on that. But definitely tolerance does shift over time.
0: And the body wants homeostasis, right? So with set and setting, if you're going to be listening to the same playlist in the same room with the same eye mask, switch things up a little bit. I'm sure that tolerance might shift too.
6: And if we approach whatever exploration we're doing with, again, reverence and humility and respect, if we're to let go of working with a substance for a while, for whatever reason, it will let go of us. But as long as we're taking that approach towards it.
1: I think Gabo's question is, have I messed up my relationship with ketamine, is an interesting one, because we do change our experience with substances. Cannabis is a good example. Often it starts with giggles and chuckles, and then it winds up with, uh, hang on a second.
3: <laughs> can,
6: can you? I can
1: Cannabis starts out with giggles and chuckles, gets very serious and people get very high, and then they become paranoid after smoking it for enough years. And some people just can't stand this stuff anymore. You can wait 10 years and you'll still be paranoid. MDMA can also have an endpoint with people where they just don't have the sparkle anymore and it just stops working and you can wait years and it's it again and it doesn't work. So there are enough substances out there that you do have an endpoint with. So be careful. Treat your receptor sites very carefully with all substances and, and don't overuse anything and that allows the magic to continue. So next question I have I didn't actually write down, but I wish
2: I did and that is what is the k-hole?
4: <laughs> the k-hole. <laughs> So very often when people talk about the K-hole, it tends to be in a really negative sense. So I'll speak to my own experience of a really negative experience of K-holing um, while also saying that very often when I'm aiming to get to places that are really profound, I have actually taken the approach of, of doing it qu- with quite a bit of reverence and I'm taking really k inducing doses too much and then you don't recall anything that's also still fun (laughs) but it's nice to take something back with you but in the context of a negative k-hole for myself and for a lot of people that i've talked to it tends to be when it incapacitates their ability to actually respond in real time to something that they need to respond to so for example if you're in a festival and the people that you're around are not really safe taking, you know, enough K, then can actually take you to a place where you can't control your body, right? And that can be a super, super scary experience for someone that's not surrounded by people that are safe. Um, In my own experience, it happened through the brilliant idea of mixing uh, ketamine and alcohol. Uh, So if you ever thought of that, don't, because it's horrible. I'll tell the story because it's short and it's really funny. So went to a bar, came back home, decided to do some K. Immediately it hit me and it combined with the spins that you get when you're drinking. And then what proceeded to happen is, is really fascinating. It's never happened to me before, but I started to feel like everyone that I was talking to had a script. And somehow they were reading from the script without even seeing them. My brain couldn't comprehend the amount of time that it takes from thought to mouth or expression it just couldn't comprehend that it, w- it, it couldn't believe that people could do that that fast <laughs> and people were asking me questions and i was responding and then i was thinking to myself how am i answering where's my script <laughs> and that was the most disorienting experience almost like a little bit par- paranoid inducing experience i felt like jim carrey in that movie where where he's like put in the truman show. truman show yes exactly <laughs> And, and everyone's just in on it and that felt so scary and then it started to go into like nausea and wanting to to vomit and if you're taking a really strong weed edible you you feel really dizzy and then you lie down and then that's dizzy so you stand up and then that's dizzy so then you lie down so I mean that's something that can happen when you take too much ketamine that's my own experience with it
5: Yeah, the K-hole, it's like referred to in many different ways depending on the setting and you're sort of touching on that, you know, it's, if you're out on the dance floor, it's referred to one way where the result that you're actually getting is kind of part of where we're trying to take people to. (laughs) It's in a different way. Obviously, you're laying down, you're very comfortable, you've got an eye mask on, cozy blankets, probably a Himalayan salt lamp, and (laughs) it's a... really pleasant environment safe and so it's a, not a bad place to go to a k-hole
2: <laughs> so what i'm hearing there is the setting is almost part and parcel with the definition of the k-hole the K-hole changes based on where you're doing ketamine with whom all right so maybe just time for one or two more questions before we turn it over to all of you to share the wonderful questions that you might have and i just wanted to see if any of you wanted to share a little bit about the kind of exclusion criteria And then on the other side of that, like who is ketamine really beneficial for? We've kind of alluded to that a little bit with some of the mental health conditions, for example, that you've shared that ketamine can be beneficial for. But if we can maybe just recap that, that'd be really wonderful. Like Who should use ketamine? And maybe who shouldn't use ketamine?
1: We at Qi Integrated Health have three separate programs. We have the big cat program, ketamine-assisted therapy, for people with major mental health diagnoses. We have a catetation program for people who just would like to integrate psychedelics into the mental health program. And it's for people with milder diagnoses. And the program that is newest for us, we're giving psychedelics to Vancouver police officers. It's called the Helping Heroes program. Because we want to heal police. Traumatized cops running around a city are not as good for a city as healthy cops. Cops that understand psychedelics are better cops than cops that don't understand psychedelics. So we specifically have a program aimed at the Vancouver Police Department. So your question for me really depends on which of those programs and how we're thinking about it. But there are some people for whom ketamine is not useful for. And and the immediate exclusion criteria is high blood pressure, out-of-control hypertension, and and mania, and psychosis risks. Those are the main ones that we really don't want to see. We're we're careful around personality disorders. Personality disorders have historically been seen by the psychiatric community as untreatable. I think psychedelics can offer that population something, but you have to be incredibly careful, thoughtful, and willing to work a specific type of program to make that work.
6: And on the reverse side, because its main pathway is the glutamate pathway, um, there's, a, there's many more people who qualify for ketamine th- um, therapy than who would uh, be eligible for other psychedelic therapies, so it really is a boon that way.
0: And this is very anecdotal, but I found that um, folks who take stimulants, um, like ADHD medication, Ritalin, Vyvanse, Adderall, um, even coffee, frequent coffee drinkers, because the stimulants upregulate your nervous system and kind of keep you more in your body, it's hard to then dissociate out of your body. So I've noticed the efficacy is lower, at least on the days that you do decide to do ketamine.
5: To add, I would say, you know, a person being really ready to do ketamine-assisted therapy is important, that there is a willingness and a desire to really take it to its depths of what it can do for you. People that are kind of half-ass entering it or maybe just not ready for that tends to be in my experience less effective it still can be really beneficial so specific examples of this we have a lot of really concerned parents coming with kind of younger adults older teens almost pushing them from behind going this is going to help you get better that's not someone that we would are you ready to give ketamine to? Of course, there has to be a willingness. A person has to be able to consent to what it is that they're going to experience, which is quite a profound shift in consciousness. So they need to be able to get that.
8: Yeah.
1: One of the other advantages of ketamine is you don't necessarily have to come off antidepressant medications. Many people who come to us and ask for psychedelic work have a long history of being on mental health being on mental health medications. And they often are contradictory when you're talking about psilocybin and MDMA. But they're not when you're talking about ketamine. So that's, that's really easy. That makes ketamine prescription easier. And one of the challenges we have at our clinic is people say, I'm now healed and I don't need to be on these meds anymore. Can I come off them immediately? And our answer is always, no. No, wait, just work a process here, work a process. But but ketamine can work with other psychiatric medications in a way that other psychedelics
6: can't. And to add to that, it's a bit of a tangent, but the root of a lot of mental health conditions is developmental trauma. And an intergenerational trauma and family systems approach can be really helpful in terms of the framework that you're working in. So in terms of the preparation for ketamine treatment, taking that approach can surface material that becomes available for processing and digesting and healing in the treatment process. And to that end, integration is a really key part of the overall treatment process.
2: Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for all of your very thoughtful, reflective responses. I wanted to ask one more question before we turn things over to the audience for questions too, And that was actually a question that was suggested from Bridget. So thank you. And the question is, if maybe in like your most optimistic future, how could you see or how do you see ketamine transforming society?
1: So I have a model of legalization that I propose and talk about and write about. You can read it on my website. But I, I think all, subs, all psychedelics should be available to people. And they should be available in two contexts. One is through paid professionals who you can complain about if they do something wrong. But also, people should be able to purchase psychedelics. And there's a certain context for that that I want to elaborate on. But I, I think psychedelics should be woven into the fabric of our society so that you can use them in community groups, in, in monthly day dance festivals, for healing practices, in indigenous ceremonies. And ketamine is absolutely one of the many that should be available in, for to informed people who should also be able to, quite frankly, use them in the context of couples. It's one of the things that I do like to talk about, is a discussion we haven't had as a community yet. If you have a partner who you are deeply in love with, and you really want to deepen your relationship with that individual because that person is your love, I have somebody like that in my own life, (laughs) using psychedelics consciously to do that is a very profound thing. So that's outside of medical context. And so I think we should have both. We should have all of the medical ceremonial supervision piece available, paid professionals providing the service, that we can go and then we can complain about and colleges will respond if they do inappropriate things. But we should also be able to quite frankly buy psychedelics. If we've been trained and we are skilled at their use and we take them to use any way we want, that's my belief.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Beautifully put, Mark. Thank you, as always. And on that note, there is that kind of model developing in Oregon. You know, it's really just kind of getting going. So there's some, you know, glitches and that kind of working out in the early stages. But there's definitely some really amazing things happening. And it's not just in Oregon, but that happened. That state in the U.S. happens to be leading the way at the moment in terms of a more comprehensive model that Mark just talked about.
0: Yeah, and I'm not anti-psychiatry or anti-medications, but for you know treatment-resistant depression or folks who have been taking these meds for a long time, uh, ketamine or any psychedelic, legalizing these would help to hopefully not lead to that dependence long term, which is obviously a net positive for society.
5: I would like to frame it in a question. It's like, what do you think is possible when you have a society who is more embodied, who experiences more self-compassion and love and belonging and all of the things that are possible in using these medicines in positive ways, so what's possible in a society like that? That's what I see.
4: To me, uh, a lot of what I was thinking about from the more you could say structured way is really in alignment with what Mark shared. I also see it just fully replacing alcohol, to be honest. Not just ketamine, but I really resonate with, with the question that you're posing here, Madison, because when we're not being with ourselves, when we're not experiencing the, the highs and the lows and the everythingness of day-to-day existence where we're not experiencing the contractions and the expansions within our own lives and are not present with them. Can we say that we're really living? I know that there's nothing there's anything wrong with that being the case, but for me a future where psychedelics and ketamine and, and the substances that have the potential to connect us to each other is is, is happening. It it really it really is about a heart centered existence. You know, I come from Nicaragua. I grew up surrounded by a bunch of uh, aunts and uncles and to me and cousins. And to me, it's just like that gets to happen with everyone that I meet. And some I might like, some I might not like, but uh, but I really will have this sense of respect because I have touched my own darkness and I can see other people in all of their fullness, not just the things that I want to like. So to me, it brings curiosity and it really helps to bring down judgment. So that's what I picture for the future. Thank you. Let's give a round of applause for our panelists.
1: I I did have a quick comment. If you think about what's happening in this room, look around you. So this is a group of people who are very interested in using psychedelics. I would guess most (laughs) of you are experienced. Not for sure, but I would guess. So as you walk around and talk to people, just notice something. Notice the level of self-disclosure. Notice the level of intimacy that people have. Psychedelics are practicing intimacy. And as people have that practice frequently, and they get together in community settings of this which is one, you will notice a certain level of vulnerability and openness and willingness to talk about incredibly real issues and to demonstrate connections. Psychedelics are also connecting molecules. So when people have those kind of experiences and they get together in environments like this, you notice different kinds of conversations.
2: Thank you, Mark. Thank you. All right, so we're gonna turn over to some questions here. I'm gonna ask Gabby if you don't mind helping me out run the mic around. Um, If you don't mind, when you ask a question, please speak into the mic because we're actually recording this for a podcast episode and we'd love to include your questions in the podcast. So just make sure you ask your question nice and clear and you can address the question to ideally a particular person on the panel or a few people. So if you have a question, Gabby's gonna come around and pass you the mic.
8: Hi, my question is just about
5: music. If you have any recommendations for if you're doing a trip,
8: where to find music and sort of what you're looking for in the music, thanks.
4: I'll speak specific to my own journeys. There are four absolutely beautiful tracks created by Porangi and Liquid Bloom. And I actually learned that they were specifically made for ketamine, to my surprise. I had no idea when i started using them for that but each one is gorgeous it has it's their hour-long you could say mixes right and yeah that would be my recommendation to start
5: very specific love it yeah it's it's music that will take you on an arc so you want there to be sort of a climax in the music Aligns similarly with the place that you would be having the most experience of the of the medicine so yeah There's a piece of guidance there. Spotify has some great playlists. You Mendel Kalin has made some Johns Hopkins University There's one ketamine initiation playlist. That one's pretty wild.
0: (laughs) I Just have made my own playlists. Yeah, just on YouTube and stuff. So it's like random internet genres, like Vaporwave or something weird, but yeah, same idea, like ARC, and the ARC really helps to kind of guide a story. No words. Yeah, no words, no lyrics.
6: I have a number that I use, I'm a Ketterman playlist DJ, and, and part of that is that sometimes it works to just have the playlist and go through it, and then other times, when you're really dancing in the energy of the space, To have a selection to move between, right, it really just kind of adds another dimension to it, at least in my experience.
1: (laughs) Well, it's curious, because at our clinic, any of the staff can submit a playlist that anybody else can use. I have two playlists that I've submitted. They're actually very different. One is, as Helen said, it has short songs. It's two, three, four minute sections of songs that build through the arc. And I recommend if people are using my playlist, they start with that one. Because if you're going to get caught in a tape loop, you want it to change. And the music will change your mood and your perspective. So, for unskilled ketamine users, having a variety of music that takes you through the arc is ideal. For people that are now skilled and understand how to work with the medicine, my second playlist has really long, sl- slow songs. So you can really stay in one space and kind of work the song. Gama is the person who I love. I think it's, oh, I'm blanking on the name. It's not coming to me. It's, on my, it's in my book. Actually, I've written a book on how you do psychedelic psychotherapy, and there's a list of music suggestions at the end. Thanks. Shamanic dream. I got it. <laughs> uh,
3: thank you guys so much for the amazing panel. I just wanted to ask, when I do psychedelics, I find that there are small little quality of life things that uh, I do, like, for example, making tea when I do LSD, or wearing my favorite outfit that enhance the trip drastically. Are there any little quality of life tips or life hacks that you have for ketamine?
5: Get a really good eye mask that, I can't remember the brand, I'm sure somebody here knows, but there you go, Mind, Mindfold, so that you are able to open your eyes fully without them touching anything on the inside of the eye mask, because you don't necessarily have a sense of what your eyes are doing while you're in the journey, and having that not impact anything can be a lot more comfortable. Cozy socks. <laughs>
3: yeah.
6: Go to the bathroom right before. <laughs> Don't get in a
1: hot tub <laughs> or a bath. If you lose consciousness
0: and you're in the water, you can drown avoid light, turn off all the lights, or dim them severely, because you will be light-sensitive.
4: I have some specific ones that, I don't know, they're very unique. I don't know why they started to appear, but crystals, to hold the crystal in each hand, or I realize it doesn't have to be a crystal, but something, having something hard in each hand has taken me to places that are way deeper. And then if there's this, uh, an emotional meaning to the thing that you're holding, and just like people take tokens with them to other psychedelic journeys, that tends to be really powerful. And for myself, finding about like, my most upright posture in a seated position, like really aligning it to the most that I can, for some reason that has taken me to the deepest places, way more than lying down, surprisingly. So those are my two more unique things,
6: perhaps. And if you have someone witnessing, guiding, supporting you, um, getting a foot massage or a head and shoulder massage, coming out of the pre-K experience can be wonderful.
2: One small thing I wanted to add was nasal spray. Yeah, I think that the convenience that's afforded by that is really pleasant.
8: Thank you so much. So I had some profound ketamine experiences in Europe. And they were pretty much like you both actually explained, Madison and Gabo, like very profound. Like you go through different landscapes, like you are in a K hole, and it's like amazing when you come out 45 minutes on the dot. So after traveling around, I tried different ketamines, and I never had the same experience. I, was, I, w- I would be taking it quite for like a long period, like probably like six months, like maybe a little bit too much. But anyway, anyways, I could never find the same ketamine again. And here I found out that there are actually different types of ketamine. So there's an R ketamine, there's an S ketamine. And somebody also told me recently about MXE. So now I'm thinking maybe what I used to take was MXE to have like these profound experiences. Like could you maybe, like do you know the difference between them? Like which ones would, what type of ketamine would be better to have like a more profound experience where you have like an out-of-body kind of experience?
1: So, so ketamine, if you go to a pharmacist and say, I want ketamine, what you're going to get is a ricemic mixture. By that, I mean ketamine is an equal part mixture of a right-hand molecule and a left-hand molecule. They're mirror images of each other, and they're mixed. And there is evidence that says that that is the best combination for therapy. The pharmaceutical companies can't patent that. So they separated out the R and the S and one company has marketing and is saying that the S is better. It's not. It's the mixture is better. There's actually a number of different ketamines. There's fluoroketamine, there's deschloroketamine, there's R, there's S, and there's mixed. I, the one that you mentioned I'm actually not familiar with. But the evidence says that pure mixed R and S ketamine, which is just ketamine, the riceemic mixture is the best for therapy
0: and subjectively one tends to be a body high one's a very visual high so that's like the best of both
3: worlds hello hello this can be answered by one person but i don't know if whoever wants to take it can regarding the the k-hole stuff i was just kind of curious on the arc is the is basically i'm trying to understand like the range that you would consider the k-hole and then is that the therapeutic range is or is like is getting close to that also therapeutic and then is anything after that you're out just so i can kind of understand what that trajectory is as you lead up to enter into and then exit the k-hole into something else a little more detail would be helpful hopefully that was clear
5: yeah i think i got it so speaking to i'll speak to intramuscularly it's going to be different for every route that you take it so With intramuscular, you would be in that K-hole spot quite quickly. Its effects, the onset is within two to five minutes. So we've been describing that's quite fast. Then for about 20 minutes or so, you would be at that peak experience, and then there's a slow tapering down, which is still very much a therapeutic experience. Just you're slowly integrating back into your body during that. Yeah, I'll leave it there.
3: So, like, let me just if you undershoot and get close is like that going to be less effective i guess what i'm kind of getting at
5: that hasn't been shown in research okay in clinical experience it certainly has been my experience mm-hmm. yeah cool thank you
7: Hi, uh, my name is Selma. I have two questions. Uh, My first is, can we talk a little bit more about ketamine infusion therapy for people with ADHD who are not on medication? I don't know if there's much literature published on that. And my second question is, what are the factors that contribute to having a K-experience in which you K-hole or have
8: a panic attack?
5: I'm not, yeah, I'm not familiar with any literature specifically for ketamine and ADHD. If anybody else is, please come fill me in after. But yeah, I would certainly be curious to look more into that. And the second part of your question was related to panic attacks and what... The, the different factors that
7: contribute to either having a panic attack... During the uh, experience or... D- or K-hole. like what are the different factors that contribute to either. Right. So the panic attack, the like heart palpitations, you know, the eye movements, the glitching, the anxiety, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is going to be how prepared you are and how well you understand the effects, what's going to... what you're going to experience in your body, knowing that you're safe, that all of the things that you're experiencing are expected definitely will lessen the likelihood of having a panic attack. And, I mean, the K-hole really just comes down to the level of dosing and someone's tolerance. So we talked a little bit about some things that would increase somebody's tolerance, but ultimately, yeah, that's the kind of short answer of that.
6: And some of the things that we've been talking about, Gabor mentioned, and, and Mohit, is in, in, in terms of the preparation going into it, encouraging someone to start breathing really deeply and being aware of their breath can mitigate a lot of that. Yeah.
3: Them. Hello. My question is that because K-ketamine is not as difficult to facilitate because it's like a personal journey, would you say that that's a better solo or, I guess, substance medicine for folks to be able to participate in? If there are barriers to accessing the therapy because of income or other things, would that be a better one compared to, say, psilocybin or LSD? In your opinion?
0: Definitely do your homework around just what to expect if it's your first time. And it's so always nice to have somebody, you know, trips at you or guide you or just keep an eye on you regardless. Uh, the first thought that I had was the biggest, maybe, fear is disorientation um, and losing your balance or just falling off the bed or something like So that'd be my biggest concern for first time use if you're doing it solo.
4: I can add that it can sometimes generate some nausea as well. So the possibility of vomiting because of that nausea is also possible. And by, I would echo as well that how you prepare yourself for the experience can really mitigate a lot of those risks.
1: If you mean by solo, doing it alone, unsupervised, without any support people around, I actually don't recommend that for any psychedelic. I'll So doing it sort of recreationally, actually that's a bad word, but doing it outside of the context of either research or a clinician. I mean, the underground is flourishing, and and I think that's actually a good thing. And the underground allows people to do a variety of novel types of molecules and different types of therapies, and then that gets used in the above-ground world, so there's a cross-fertilization between underground and above-ground. The advantage of above ground is you are dealing with licensed therapists and if they don't treat you well, you can complain and they can lose their license. So there's pros and cons, but be careful with who you choose and and check references.
3: I was just uh, thinking
0: if somebody wanted to get trained who's already, let's say, a counselor or a therapist in another modality, how does one integrate this, the psychedelics or especially the ketamine? There are many training
1: programs. And how do and I, th- when, where do well, I find... Well, the big training program that I know of is called RTT, Roots to Thrive. It's Vancouver Island University, and it's excellent. Shannon Dames is the nurse who runs the program, and she's one of my heroes. So if you want ketamine therapy training, I would go to Vancouver Island University. If you want MDMA training, you talk to MAPS. If you want psilocybin training, you talk to Theracil. If you want generic training, you talk to the folks at ATMA, ATMA, full self-disclosure, I work for them. But there's many different organizations that provide psychedelic training, and most of them are excellent.
7: All right, thank you so much. I'm curious to know your thoughts on neuroplasticity and ketamine, specifically optimizing the window of neuroplasticity post-ketamine. There's so much really fascinating research about that. And I think that it's very empowering to share this with clients. I guide ketamine journeys to explain this to them because there is, I think, about a 48 hour window post ketamine. It's longer with MDMA, longer with psilocybin. But if the clients are aware of this, they can really be very careful about what's coming into their field, about their conversations. They can practice new habits, practice new actions. And in my practice with ketamine, I'm finding this is so powerful when I really explain neuroplasticity, that it's in in their hands in a lot of ways. But ketamine provides such a window for this. It's actually called a, a critical window in a lot of the research. And it's, it's very powerful. So I'd love to know your thoughts on that.
1: So the concept of neuroplasticity is popular in the psychedelic world. And I think it's a huge opportunity for us to talk about something. And it's a risk. So the opportunity is essentially what you said, is that there is this opening of the brain neural pathways that does happen with most psychedelics. The risk is if you believe that it's a bit like taking your car into the garage where you slide the car into this bay and then you go off for lunch and you come back later and the car is fixed because this magic of neuroplasticity has now happened to you and you don't need to be involved, your chance of healing has actually gone down dramatically. So when you're talking about neuroplasticity with people, you say there's an opportunity to increase neuroplasticity, but with plasticine, you need to have an artist who's actively working with this now plastic plasticine and the artist's intention of what they intend to make with this now more plastic brain is absolutely crucial.
6: Yeah, just to build on that, our vision for Empower came out of doing this deeper psychedelic and other types of work Together and recognizing that people were getting insights and ahas and downloads about where their lifestyle was off, adjustments they needed to make in terms of sleep and diet, and really realizing that they needed therapy and so forth and the vision for empower was basically established to provide these wraparound holistic services as people started to explore psychedelics as a healing modality more so essentially what we have is opportunities for people to capitalize on this window of neuroplasticity to take advantage of the other programs we offer, which include neurotherapy, craniosacral therapy, osteopathy, all types of counseling, and naturopathy. And I'm really happy that some of our practitioners are here tonight. So, that absolutely, Naomi, <laughs> it's a really kind of, as um, you're saying, an important window where if, if people can take advantage of other modalities that are available to them, it really, again, builds on and sustains the benefits of the therapy.
0: And just anecdotally, like in that short window after using it uh, the first few times for myself, you know, you'd watch a, a comedy show or something and you'd find yourself laughing like you were a five-year-old kid again. Like just, the walls come down and you're like, well, where, like, where was that part of me all those times?" So, very powerful.
4: The the thing that comes to mind is this idea of stories, right? And we are always part of a story that we're telling ourselves. So this window of opportunity that you mentioned to me is the opportunity to start to rewrite that story, as you said, to really author where you want that story to go. But it's not enough to just think what you want the story to be. It, It really is about embodiment too, right? How does it feel to be? in the body of the person that's living in the alignment that you're really aiming to live in, right? What does it feel to share vulnerably and to really bring in your unique gift into this world? Uh, Every time that I do any psychedelic, and even breath work, and even going into cold exposure, I have psychedelic experiences. My mind manifests and expands. And I have found that the more I have done that through my life, the plasticity tends to remain more, so much so that Even a deep conversation with a friend can nudge me in the direction towards more wholeness or just like facing fears, right? And it's never fully easy. There's always going to be actions that you really don't want to take. But I remember what's this quote? I think it's Jung that says, "That that which you most need will be where you least want to look. So at least this creates an opening for you to look. And community. Community is also super important. That's what we're trying to do here as well.
7: Yeah. Pressure of being lost. So for a long time, LSD was considered, oh my god, we can cure people's brain problems with this, right? Then there was like DMT for problems. And now ketamine seems to be really popular as like, a oh, this can really help trauma. When would ketamine be more appropriate than, say, LSD, for example? And how do you determine that?
1: At the end of the day, when all psychedelics are legalized, I think there will be some that will be used specifically for some things. I think 3MMC will be used for couples counseling. Spiritual experiences will be psilocybin and LSD. Ketamine will be used for training therapists initially. MDMA will be used for PTSD. But we actually haven't done any research on head-to-head. This is my speculation. There's no research that's been done comparing different psychedelics for the same diagnoses. My vision is therapists would have access to a wide range of different chemicals, and quite frankly, people get to try. And if this one doesn't work for you, try something else. And so, I think many should be available. And I don't have one where I, can I have my little list that I gave you, but within that, I think there's a hu- there should be a huge range for personal preference.
6: And it's been said a number of times, but bears repeating in a ceremonial therapeutic, and ultimately community setting, yes, they all just have the most beneficial effects.
2: Anything else to add there for that question?
6: Yeah, you know, I'm curious to see what unfolds as we do
5: more research head-to-head, but one thing I predict that would stay for ketamine actually is its ability to, because it's so rapid acting, its ability to mitigate sense of, it's suicidality. So I do see that place continuing to be useful for ketamine is kind of breaking that cycle and then allowing space for somebody to have something else.
2: Beautiful. Thank you so much. Let's get another round of applause for our panelists. <laughs> Before we shift things over to some socializing and hangout I want to give each of us here opportunity to share maybe an upcoming offering that you might have, something that you would like people to, to know about. And so maybe we can start down with Mark. Or just where people can find you, if you want to share that. What? Anything that you want to share, like a little, like a, a book perhaps, or maybe a- You can buy my book offering. on
1: Amazon, if you want. If you want to know how to be a psychedelic psychotherapy, oh, there's one left at the back. There's one left. If you want to know how to be a psychedelic psychotherapist, I wrote it for people in the underground initially. in In my world of MAPS Canada, I was the complaints department for the community. And what I got is a lot of people who are providing underground work just don't know what they're doing. And so giving people information is probably better for our whole community. So I wrote a book saying this is how you assess, this is how you screen, this is how you set people up, this is the process of psychedelic psychotherapy. And I think the information should be widely available. So it's available, as one copy at the back, but you can also buy it on Amazon. And I think it's a helpful tool for our community to prevent bad things from happening.
6: So we take a, what we call a steward approach, again stewarding all aspects of the resources that we've been gifted to provide and that means paying practitioners a good living and which means using an interdisciplinary approach makes ketamine access well not really as accessible as we would like for the majority of the people so if there is any Spark, any ideas that you have in terms of ways that we can open up the access? We're looking at them all the time. We have more and more contacts and avenues in the insurance industry, for instance. We're pursuing that in terms of, again, making it more accessible, but we're happy to receive any ideas. We're proud to run a lean program doing the best we can in terms of accessibility, and again, any ideas that we have to make that more so a welcome?
0: Well, I'm part of, so Thrive Downtown is the main kind of trauma counseling clinic that I'm a part of, so that's right here in or downtown Vancouver. We offer a lot of services around psychedelic integration, trauma counseling. We have a wonderful group of therapists, so very proud to be a part of that. And then I have my own private practice, it's very small, in Burnaby, BC as well. So I offer a range of services that I will not advertise here, but come talk to me
5: something as well that my team at empower health is really looking at is developing more community partnerships and you know we certainly feel that we are stronger when we work together it's like one plus one equals three so if you are a part of an organization or community initiative that you feel would our work would be synergistic together in some way, we'd love to speak with you about that. And as well, something really exciting that's already been mentioned, but worth mentioning again is more integration of other services surrounding ketamine-assisted therapy, including things like neurofeedback, which really specifically enhances the period of neuroplasticity. So that's something we're really excited about as a team, too.
4: And for me, most of the places that you're going to find me are very much related to Flying Sage. So. Our next event is happening Wednesday morning. We're starting our cold dip challenge. We're doing 11, 12? 11 weeks of going into the ocean at Kitts Beach. It is a vibe. It is so great. Uh, if you don't want to do the challenge, you can also just come. And But yeah, we'd love to see you all there if you're feeling brave and want to be part of that. And then every Thursday from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m., I also offer breathwork ceremonies just around that area as well, Kitsilano. So if you're curious, you can just find both of those things on our events page on the Flying Stage website. Thanks again. What do you offer the breathwork? Thursdays. What. Oh, what? What do you offer? The. The right. Thank you. <laughs> this breathwork is particularly special because we also offer four ACO DMT as a microdose, that's an optional medicine that you can take, and what it does is that if if you've never done breath work, uh, the microdose can really open you up to the experience. And if you've never done breath work, period, then it's a beautiful bridge to what psychedelics can be, where you remain in control most of the time, so highly, highly recommend.
2: Thanks, Gabo. If I may, I want to share uh, a couple things with you as well. Outside of the Flying Sage, I wear another hat in the underground, actually, running retreats. And uh, I also guide people on journeys. And I just want to share about an upcoming group journey retreat that we have on an island close to Vancouver. Towards the end of the month here, we have two spots left, and that's an MDMA retreat. If you're really curious to learn anything about that, feel free to come chat with me after. And with the Flying Sage, Gabo kind of alluded already to th- some of the big things I wanted to share with you, like our Copans challenge that we have coming up. but. Yeah, I don't know if there's too much more to add, aside from the fact that, yeah, we're doing about five to six events per week now, on average. We're doing breathwork every Thursday. Like Gabo said, we've got the cold plunges. Every Wednesday, we have a rotating thing called the KITS Meetup, where we have a different facilitator coming to offer something different every single other week. We have cannabis ceremonies as well every other Wednesday. So if you're looking to develop a more conscious relationship with cannabis, that can be a really beautiful opportunity. And then every month, we alternate between a really large uh, sound bath event, which is happening in February, called Ascension, so it'll be a microdose, psilocybin microdose breathwork sound bath offering, and then we alternate that with an ecstatic dance offering every other month to you called Lumio, where you can catch this guy DJing some really awesome music, and we also usually bring some breathwork into that as well. So we've got lots on the go, hope that you can check it out, and yeah, thanks everyone for being here today. Let's give another round of applause for our panelists. Thank you so much.
5: I just want to shout out, thank you to you, Michael Oliver, and to the Flying Sage, really, for hosting such amazing and expansive events, for bringing community together in this beautiful space. It's just, yeah, gratitude.